Well, good morning again. And uh, we are starting Advent season, so Merry Christmas as well. And I'm looking forward to the Christmas season with you. Now, as we're anticipating Christmas, um, I do have a challenge for you this morning. Uh, You'll notice in your program that there is an invitation. It says, join us this Christmas Eve. and has the services. Uh, Call this the Each One Reach One Push. We'll do this every Christmas season. We're going to be outwardly focused for Christmas. Imagine that being outwardly focused for Christmas. And uh, one of the things that I think we can do for our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones who do not know Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, is just to invite them to experience the Jesus that we're experiencing. You remember how a couple of weeks ago we said a disciple puts their hand, their friend's hand, their neighbor's hand in the hand of Jesus. So I would encourage you, start praying right now about someone that you can invite for the Christmas Eve services and be hospitable. Tell them what service you're going to, sit with them, invite them into the church as your friend. All right, we're moving along in Luke, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Luke 5, verse 33. If you not have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is found in the New Testament. Two major divisions of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament is the back third of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's how we get there. All right. I want to do a little word association exercise this morning. I'm going to say a word, and I'd like it if you wrote down the first word or phrase that comes to your mind when I say this word. You ready? The word is religion. Write down the first word or phrase that comes to mind when I say the word religion. All right, you got three more seconds. Come on. Three, two, one. Now that word religion carries with it, in, in my mind, a lot of baggage. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, didn't we? And, and we're told that there's two topics you don't talk about at the Thanksgiving table. One being politics. The second being religion. That's right. Well, we are in church this morning, so I think it's okay to talk about it. Now, to unpack this word, I'd like to consider an analogy. Who here enjoys cooking? Raise your hand if you enjoy cooking. Okay, now let me just clarify this. If you raise your hand and you enjoy eating, that doesn't count, okay? Uh, Well, you can enjoy eating too, but we know with cooking that there's an art and a science to cooking, isn't there? The science of cooking is following a recipe. The art of cooking is following a recipe and something brilliant comes out. Two people can follow the same recipe to make a soup. And there can be two different outcomes. Uh, They might not know how to cut the vegetables to the right size. They might add ingredients into the soup at different times. And don't even get me started on salt. I mean, salt is so important for soup. You add too much salt in the soup is disgusting. You add too little salt to the soup and it's bland. 
My wife, Katie, she understands the art and science of cooking soup, as you can tell. Now, when you eat bad soup, do you walk away from soup and say, oh, that was so disgusting. I'm never eating soup again. I'm done with soup. Kind of be an odd response. Because you'd look at it and say, well, that had a bad soup. That must be something wrong with the who? Chef, the cook. Not all soup for all time. I want to suggest this morning that religion is like soup. Maybe you've heard someone say, I hate religion, or I want nothing to do with formal, organized religion. And when they say that, I suspect that they're associating that experience, that sour taste in their mouth with religion, because they experience religion presented to them by bad chefs. But what happens when you have good chefs in the kitchen? <laughs> Magic happens. Soup does what soup is intended to do. It is intended to delight us, to warm us, to sustain us. I want to suggest to you this morning that religion doesn't have to be stale and bitter and cold. It can be savory and delicious if we engage in it, if served the way God intended it to be served. So what was his, his intent? Well, we're going to see that this morning as we look at Luke chapter 5. We'll pick up the story, chapter 5, verse 33. If you've been along with us, you know that we make our way through books of the Bible, and if you want to get caught up in Luke, the easiest way to do that is just to read the first five chapters of Luke, and we'll keep making our way through. We're going to pause for a little bit in December and January, but then we'll pick back up with Luke again and work through it. So verse 33, the story picks up. And they, they is the Pharisees, said to him, the disciples of John fast often, uh, often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, this is a probing question from the Pharisees, and if you understand Pharisaical religion, you understand that they treat religion as science only. They've taken religious practice, they've created formulas for the religious practice, and if someone follows the formulas of the religion, poof, you have a righteous person. They've done this with fasting. I mean, this is how fasting works. You fast twice a week. You fast on Mondays, you fast on Thursdays. The fast begins in the morning. You eat nothing until the sun goes down, and then you can have dinner. doesn't matter how your heart feels towards God. doesn't matter what other dynamics are happening in your life. As long as you rigidly obey those rules, then you are a righteous person. Because clearly, spiritual people fast two times per week. Now, we create similar formulas like this. I mean, I've got to tell you guys, I'm an early riser, and I know that spiritual people read their Bible every day at 5 a.m. Much, much less spiritual to read your Bible at 8 p.m. at night. Spiritual people, really spiritual people, know how to pray. They know how to insert Father into 10 sentences of prayer. 
Moses level spirituality is the type of person who knows just how and when to insert thee and thou into their prayers. You see, religion that is reduced to formulas is bland and lifeless. Too many people think that spirituality consists of doing things that you do not want to do and refraining from doing things that you want to do. American humorist Irma Bombeck wrote about a time that she was sitting in church on a Sunday morning when a small child turned around and began to smile at the people behind her. The mother, in a stage whisper, reprimanded the girl, Stop grinning! You're in church right now! After swatting her and seeing the girl's face turn from a smile to a frown, the mother said, That's better! Bombeck concluded that some people come to church looking like they have just read the will of their rich aunt only to learn that she left everything to her pet hamster. (laughs) We'll let that one sink in just a little bit. You know, in this story, I'm sure that the disciples' carefree attitude bothered the Pharisees. To be in the presence of Jesus was a joyful experience for them. They they smiled a lot as they walked down the road. They laughed together. Can you imagine that? Walking with Jesus and laughing. Do you know formulaic religionists are always suspicious when people actually enjoy practicing religion? They think those people clearly don't get it. They don't understand how hard this is, how difficult this is. They wouldn't be smiling right now unless they were weighed down like I'm weighed down. Verse 34, Jesus exposes how faulty this thinking is. He says, can you make wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? Now, a newly married Jewish couple did not honeymoon. They would spend the week in their home and guests would come into their home and part of the religious practice was actually that the wedding couple did not fast during this week. So the week was marked by celebration and and feasting and Jesus' point here is, look, I am like that bridegroom. This is a highly relational dynamic. Like the bridegroom, what happens when a a husband and a wife are married? Well, they bring two families together. So Jesus is bringing God to man. And he says, when I am with these disciples of mine, there's no reason to fast. Because the purpose of fasting has to do with feeling distant from God. When you feel distant over maybe sin in your life or some experience in your life. But how can they fast when Jesus is with them? So here's a principle about religion. True religion is relational. Friends, a relationship with Jesus should involve a lot of smiling a lot of joy in the heart. The natural mood, the natural mark of a Christian should be a disposition of joy. Martin Luther once said, a Christian should and must be a cheerful person. If he isn't, the devil is tempting him. 
Now, I just want to qualify that and caveat that, and I, I understand that, that some of us deal with things like depression. But I believe that even in the midst of depression, we can experience what the Bible calls joy. There can be this deep, fulfilling reality of knowing that I am in right relationship with the God of the universe, that the Holy Spirit indwells me, and that He is changing me from the inside out. This satisfying reality that I don't have to fear anything in life. Because the Bible says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? So there's nothing in this universe that can happen that for one second, second means that God's out of control. And this also gets very practical for you. Think about Christian habits. And when I'm talking about Christian habits, I'm talking about reading your Bible, prayer, church going, Christian habits that are important. If true religion is relational, think about why we do those habits. Do we read the Bible just to gain more content, more knowledge? The answer is no. We read the Bible to get to know the God of the universe better. We don't just pray because that's something that we're supposed to do. Prayer is how we connect with God. We're having a dialogue with the Heavenly Father. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray that way. Think about church going. Church going. I would suggest to you that church going is meant to be intensely relational. It's not just something that, oh boy, it's 8.30 Sunday morning, 10.30 Sunday morning. I've got to check that box. I've got to show up to church. If, if that's why you're coming to church, something's wrong. But I would also say that if church going is just something that you infrequently engage in, like I do it like once a month because it's part of my life framework, something's wrong. Because if it's relational, relationships don't grow if I engage in relationship occasionally at my convenience. That's what true religion is all about. We get to enjoy God's presence together when we come to church together. Now think about this. If religion is relational, then it would make sense that there would be a time to fast. Look what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. So for the Christian, fasting only makes sense when Christ's presence is removed. Okay? Now the, the imagery that Jesus depicts here it's a grim picture. You're envisioning a wedding where the groom is sitting and enjoying festivities and his wife and the people that have come to celebrate the wedding and someone forcibly removes him from that celebration. It actually foreshadows in our mind where Jesus is heading. He will be tried. He will be executed, and in those days, the disciples will fast. But hallelujah, Jesus rose again from the dead. Amen. Now, today we may wonder, is there a place for fasting? And in short, I would suggest to you, indeed, there is. Think about it like this. Jesus is not physically with us, right? We are expecting his return. So as a bride anticipates 
her soldier husband coming back from war, so should we anticipate the coming of Jesus. But we also recognize that there are a lot of things in this world that are just not how they ought to be. And that's another reason to fast. I've engaged in fasting. I've found it to be intensely personal, and it it focuses my relationship on God. But let me say this. If you've never fasted and if you've never really studied what it means to fast, you should do that before fasting. Uh, John Piper wrote a good book. You can write this title down if you want to learn more about fasting. It's just simply called A Hunger for God. So look that up if you would like to engage in this Christian discipline. Now let's look at verses 36 and 37, and we're going to see in this these few verses that Jesus' religion and the Pharisees' religion cannot be reconciled. He says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Now, parables are meant to be felt. Jesus uses imagery that helps us to really get into his teaching moment. So let's feel this parable for a moment. I have here a crisp, shiny $100 bill. Ah, I love $100 bills. Um, they're beautiful. They spend well. Even today with inflation and all the things that we have, you can still go out and have a pretty good time with $100. That's why this feels really bad, doesn't it? I mean, I hate that. It's horrible. You're thinking to yourself, why? Why would you do that? I, you could have given that to me. I could have done something with that. That's how the parable is meant to feel. You wouldn't rip a new piece of clothing to fix an old piece of clothing. You wouldn't pour new wine which hasn't been fermented into this old brittle wineskin which is just going to explode and destroy both. Now, to put your minds at rest, that was a fake $100 bill so you don't have to call the feds on me, but I know that opens up more questions. Why is the pastor carrying fake $100 bills? Trying to mix Jesus' gospel with old hat formulaic religion only ruins the power of the gospel. The, the New Testament deals with this quite a bit. In the book of Galatians, Paul addresses a church where they were trying to mix old, worn-out religion with the gospel. And he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore firm. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Remember, Christ came to set the captives free. And you destroy his work when you reduce Christianity to a a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's like adding too much salt to a perfect soup. Just a, a right amount of commandment, right? 
the way that God intended it to be, that, that seasons the soup well. But when you just keep loading on the rules and regulations, it becomes disgusting. And let me ask you this. What do you get when you mix bad soup with good soup? You get twice as much bad soup. Jesus doesn't want other chefs in his kitchen because they'll just ruin the soup. He knows without a doubt that his gospel is sufficient to meet you in your deepest place of need. So we'll continue the story. The conflict continues to brew. Now the Pharisees shift from fasting to the Sabbath. Look, look there at verses 1 and 2. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the Sabbath is a very important aspect of Jewish worship. God instituted the Sabbath the Bible tells us that God worked for six days and on the seventh he rested. And in his goodness, he institutes this Sabbath so that Israel would rest from work. He puts it into the very DNA of these people. Why would he do that? Well, because we're strivers. Because we will work and work and work and work and work. Trying to build and trying to amass in our own culture, American culture, it is a badge of honor if I stand up and I tell you, I worked seven days this week. Aren't I such a hard worker? But God said to his people, you shall not do that. You need to learn healthy rhythms. You need to pause in life and, and savor life and, and spend time with me. Well, as I said, the Pharisees who are experts at taking good soup and ruining it, they took a day that was meant to be refreshing and joyful and deeply worshipful, and they turned it into a drudgery. They sucked the life out of the day. In fact, I think that the average Joe Jewish person probably didn't look forward to Saturdays. You look at the Mishnah, which is an oral tradition written down of the Pharisees. They had 39 codes. There was a whole unit that they had worked out on what you were not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And so these 39 classifications of work were called the 40 save one. As the disciples walked along, here's what their Sabbath infraction boils down to. They were eating a handful of snacks. You got that? And this formulaic religion said that they were reaping, threshing, winnowing, preparing food, a quadruple violation. Now Jesus, instead of getting down to their level and kind of arguing semantics, he argues at a higher level, a higher principle. Look there at verses 3 and 4. Have you not read... I love when he says that to the Pharisees. They have read the Bible inside and out, forward, backwards, every way you can think about it. And he's saying, you've read something and you've missed it. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful, 
for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. If you're interested in knowing more about the bread of presence, you can look up Luke. Uh, sorry, Leviticus, not Luke. You won't get any bread of presence there. Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. That's your homework. Write it down. Leviticus 24. You can also look it up at uh, gotquestions.org. It's a Bible place. Check it out there. That's your homework. All right. So the story Jesus cites was at a time in David's life when he was on the run. And he and his men were desperate and they're famished and they come to this priest, okay, a priest, religious worker, Ahimelech, for bread. The only bread available was the sacred display bread that only the priest was to eat. David comes and he says, we're in great need. Ahimelech asks David if he and his men are ceremonial clean before God, and David says yes. And then he takes the bread and meets their physical needs with the bread that was normally intended for priests. Now the Pharisees never cite this story with their hero, David, as a violation of God's law. And Jesus gets into the principle now. He says, This is the principle. We'll boil it down to this. True religion responds to human need. Even though the letter of the law was not followed by David, Jesus implies that the heart of the law was honored when Ahimelech met their needs. Let's think about law for just a moment. The idea of laws. Laws are meant to, I would submit to you, regulate human behavior to organize, to protect, and to preserve society. What is society? Well, society is a complex web of relationships involved when people live together. I'll tell you, you have two people living next to one another, and if there is no law, there will be tension between the relationships. Now, religious law also does that. It regulates relationship. It regulates my relationship with God. It regulates my relationship with others. You can boil down the entire Old Testament law to two main laws. Love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, anytime you're you're simply asking yourself the question, is what I'm about to do moral? You just have to ask the question, would this cause me to love God more? Uh, Would this cause me to love my neighbor more? And if your answer to that question is no, then it's immoral. This means, I would submit to you, that there are actually times when law must be subordinated to need. For example, think of our traffic laws. I know some of you, you you look at that speed limit and that is only a suggestion. But I will tell you that it is necessary because people will drive recklessly. And, And the traffic lights are used to organize the flow of traffic. Yet, there are times when these laws must be subordinated to human need, if a trauma victim is picked up by an ambulance, the law must suspend for that ambulance to get that person to the hospital as quickly as possible. Can you imagine sitting at the side of the road, sitting there thinking, can you believe that ambulance right now? I mean, he's breaking all the laws. 
I'm a formulaic, law-abiding citizen. What's happening right now? Someone ought to put that man in jail. And what happens once the ambulance passes? Does that mean then that we just descend into anarchy? Like someone's broken the law, we can all do it now, yeah. No. The traffic laws take effect again in order to protect, to preserve, to organize our relationships on the road. Now, you have to understand this. God never breaks his moral law. Lying never becomes truth. What Jesus is interacting with here in this text is ceremonial law, laws that were regulating the relationship between sinners and God. Now, we, we might look at this question or question and ask ourselves, well then, who gets to say what, when this gets to happen and how it should happen? Who gets to regulate? Who has the authority to do this? And Jesus says, I do. Verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. One of my favorite scenes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's brilliant work, is there's this interaction between the Witch of Narnia and Aslan, the Jesus figure, and they're disputing the deep magic which in Narnia represents the law. The witch is citing the law to Aslan, and he growls with an authoritative growl and says, do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. And Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, has the power, the right to give orders, make decisions, enforce obedience. It is his law. He understands the intent of the law because he created it. And he will not be questioned by a bunch of religious hacks squabbling over snacks. In the next scene, we see why the pharisaical religion is fundamentally broken. The turmoil is building, the conflict is growing, Jesus is marching towards the cross. Verses 6 and 7. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Now that word, watch, carries the idea of spying. It pictures sneaking around and looking around corners to catch Jesus breaking the law. In fact, I think that they actually went and found this man and planted him into the room. I don't think the man knew this, but I think they planted him in the room and, and they're waiting and they're anticipating to see what Jesus will do. Now, talking about his withered hand, um, we don't really know if it was an accident that had happened to the man. It could even be that his entire arm is paralyzed. So think about the irony here for just a second, okay? You have this man. It's his right arm. It's his arm of strength. It is in this economic society the, the source of income to provide for himself and his family. And the religious leaders are sinisterly watching Jesus' every move, even planting this handicapped man in the room to see if he will show kindness and heal the man in order that they might accuse him of sin. Did you get that? In fact, Exodus 34, 31, 4, 
says that the lawbreaker is worthy of death, so the intent is to put Jesus to death. Friends, that is broken religion. That's not just bitter soup. That soup is poisonous. If you dip your ladle into that kettle, it will poison your soul. Kent Hughes, no matter how religious you are, if you do not care about the welfare of others, if you have no concern about the salvation of the lost, you are lost. Jesus displays his omniscience. He can read their thoughts. He calls the man forward so everyone can see him. And he questions the crowd. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy life? Now think about what he's saying here. The Sabbath was intended to be a joyful day, a day of rest, a day of restoration. And for this handicapped man, it is the only day of the week that he must not receive healing. Now, how can that be right? I want you to listen to how the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about true religion and and tell me if the Pharisees are even in the ballpark. Hosea 6.6 For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. Micah 6.8 He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.7 Blessed are the merciful. James explains what real religion looks like. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, what does this mean about religion? It's not a dirty word. It's like soup. It's as good as the chefs in the kitchen making it. And Jesus is the good chef. Look at Luke how he responds to the man with the withered hand. And after looking around at them all, he said, stretch out your hand. Again, guys, authoritative, quick phrase. And the man need only respond in faith. And he stretches out his hand. And Luke tells us, and he did so, and his hand was restored. One more principle. True religion produces Mercy. That's the art. That's the art. The art of religion is to obey God's commandments and to love people as we do that. Our religion is fundamentally broken if we do not pause, if we, it does not cause us to see people's needs, to care for those needs, and here's the hard part, to love the people in need. If we're to be known for anything, Osterville Baptist Church, I pray that it is mercy. Because I believe that God is going to bring broken lives through the door that need to encounter Jesus. At some church, at some place, at some point of time, you were that broken life who needed to have an encounter with Jesus. Look around. Look at the empty seats in the room. Look at them. I don't care if it was one. I don't care if we were filling a thousand seats. 
If there was one empty seat, I believe that God would intend to fill that seat with a broken person, someone who is going to walk into the church and be spiritually impaired, and they're going to come in from all different stripes and backgrounds and situations. Some of them are going to come from incredibly broken family backgrounds. They're going to have no understanding of God's moral will with regard to things like marriage and divorce and sexuality. They're going to walk through the door with whatever they came into the door with, whether it would be something like addiction or whether it's a a serious issue with trust because they've been relationally harmed, they've been used and abused. They're going to walk through the door and mercy meets them at the front door and says, you're welcome here. That's why if you're part of the hospitality team, you have such an important role in the church. And that's why everybody in the church is on the hospitality team. Remember what Jesus said two weeks ago. He said, come as you are. You don't need to clean up to come to Jesus. And in the same way, he expects his disciples to be inviting to people in that way. And what happens when a person comes to Jesus with a mess? Well, they don't clean it up. He does. It's a slow work. It's a patient work. But make no mistake, if you come to Jesus with your mess, you're not going to leave the same person. Well, the Pharisees don't get this. They missed it. They missed who Jesus was. They missed the intent behind religion. So the response in verse 11 makes sense. They were filled with fury. They're defending the formula. I want the formula to stay the same. I don't want it to change. Listen as we close. Of course this. Of course compassion and mercy do not make someone a Christian. You become a Christian by putting your faith in Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again from new life. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But a merciless Christian is an oxymoron. It makes no sense. I remember as a young boy sitting in church hearing a song, a simple song, they will know we are Christians by our love. Powerful because of its simplicity. Powerful because of the truth it speaks. They're not going to know I'm a Christian because I articulate theology well, though that's very important. They're not going to know I'm a Christian because I read the Bible all the time and I've eternalized so much of the Bible that now I'm like a dictionary with the Bible, though how can you grow closer to Jesus if you don't know his word? They're not going to know I'm a Christian because I pray eloquent prayers. Now, I'm not convinced that you need to be able to pray eloquent prayers, but, but prayer itself is so necessary for the Christian life. No, the Bible says that they'll know that I am a Christian if I do the works that Jesus did. Hosea 6.6, for I desire mercy. How is God calling you to be merciful? Mercy is not an event. You know, I could organize a bunch of projects and we could all go off and do those projects and check the box and wait another 364 days and then check the box again and feel good about ourselves. But I do hope we get out and do projects. I hope we're heading in that direction as a church. I hope we get into the community and love people. But it's not a box that I check. It's a lifestyle. I can't manufacture that. 
That's why I love seeing Thrive groups that are thinking critically about how we can be involved in the community and women's Bible study with your recent uh, exercise of mercy, the ministry to men. Uh, I love it when people are no longer just asking, tell me something merciful to do, but they're starting to think creatively and acting spontaneously in mercy, asking the question, how can I be merciful today? I hope you ask that question every day. How can I show Christ's love today? I'm not going to lie. This call to true religion is not an easy call. Anyone who told you that trusting in Jesus meant that you just got put into the easy life didn't understand Christianity because dynamic mercy is costly. It is inconvenient. It raises tension. It brings conflict. It's humbling. It's countercultural. But I'll tell you what, you get on that pathway and you will experience what the disciples experience. You'll smile, you'll have joy, you'll sense fulfillment in your life. Because friend, that is God's true intent for your life. Can we get quiet before God for a moment? Could you bow your heads with me as we pray and Kimo and the team are going to come forward. And we're going to have just a little season of prayer here at the end of the service during the last song. I want to encourage you, if God is laying something on your heart or someone on your heart, to come forward and see one of the elders. Make space for the Holy Spirit to move this morning. I also want to say this, if you're here today and there's something physical going on in your world or you need healing. Uh, Steve, he's over on my left-hand side. He has some anointing oil. And the Bible says that when you are sick, you, you go to an elder and you let that elder anoint you with oil and you pray with that elder. And so Steve will do that this morning. Church, let's have a little prayer service right now. Let me begin it.